0: I want to thank you for checking us out, for being here uh, this morning. We are uh, just starting a brand new sermon series we are calling uh, Open Mic. And so for the next seven weeks, we're going to be preaching uh, sermons based on topics or passages, some that you have given us, questions you've asked, as well as things that we, the pastors uh, here at Hiawatha, have thought this is just something important. Our church needs to know. It's good news. It's helpful. It's great. And so that's where we're going to be the next uh, seven weeks weeks, and if you missed anything from our Gospel of John sermon series uh, that lasted well over a year, you can go back and listen to any of that on our SoundCloud account, or you can connect to that through our app or our website. Uh, Earlier this week, I was uh, talking with my son, who's 10 years old, and he's into comic books right now, and so he was asking me, he said, Dad, why does Garfield hate Mondays? It's kind of like a theme if you read his books. If you guys know this cartoon, this comic, Garfield is just always complaining about Mondays, and uh, I thought to him, you know what, but I, I don't know why Garfield hates Mondays so much, but I do know why so many other people really hate Mondays, right? Mondays, for many of us, or at least in big chunks of our lives, Mondays equal, weekend is over. Go back to work. Uh, the grind continues. Uh, stress, toil, brokenness, vanity and so, uh, to answer Garfield's question, or my, my son's question about Garfield, not really sure about why a cat who doesn't have a job hates Mondays, but uh, he is speaking uh, for many human beings um, here in our world. So today, we're going to actually look at this idea of vocation, this idea of work, and how the gospel helps us understand it, gives us hope in it, and how we even see Jesus and his work for us, um, lots of good news we're going to get to, but... Um, yeah, maybe just to start, what, what, uh, what about you? When you hear about the word Monday, or when you hear uh, the word work, or vocation, or job, or maybe when you just heard this title of this sermon, are you like Garfield? Does work for you feel like worthless at times, void of, of meaning, void of fulfillment? One of uh, Israel's greatest kings, who is also incredibly wise, wrote this about work. He said, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Anyone else feel like, hey, this describes my Monday through Friday, my nine to five, my uh, work, my vocation, my job. It feels like actually chasing after wind. I can never get to the end, I can never grab it. Or maybe it just feels like vanity. Maybe you spend all day cooking and cleaning your your house or for your family all the while. In just a few hours, you got to start all over again. It's messy and people are hungry again. Or maybe you spend hours and, and, and days and even weeks prepping and studying for a test and then the next day you have to start all over because you have a new test coming up. Or maybe you spend hours or days pulling weeds working on your garden or your yard and mowing. And then in just another week, you have to start all over again. I think uh, King Solomon helps us in very uh, great language, helps us understand uh, just the reality of our works. So, so why do we pick this for a sermon? It's, it doesn't just apply to all of us, but why else? Uh, this idea of vocation and work just connects to all of us in very real, daily important type ways. We have people in our church currently who absolutely hate their jobs. We have people in our church who fall in maybe one of the two ends of extreme, being a workaholic or maybe being way too lazy. We have people in our church who are transitioning to being a stay-at-home parent or maybe parents who are now ending months and months of maternity or paternity leave and are now rethinking this idea of work. We have people who are retiring. We have students who are uh, taking tests and who are working in school or uh, applying to college. We have people wrestling with how to understand their, their spot in life or f- trying to figure out their value or their identity or their worth. And the pandemic gave us lots of opportunities to that. The world completely changed in many ways. Many people changed their jobs. Most of us had a chance to pause and rethink, is this what I want to do? Is this the size family I want? Do I want to pursue a different career? Uh, what happens when my job gets taken away from me. I get fired or I just can't perform like I used to be able to because myself or the world has changed. So that's why this topic, it's very uh, connected to all of us. So today I'm going to be using the word work and vocation interchangeably. Of course, there are are different definitions for these words, but when I say work or when I say vocation, don't only think a nine-to-five job. Don't only think work that you get paid do Today when I talk about work and vocation, we're going to expand that to what all human beings have to do and are called to do and get to do. So whether it's yard work, whether it's baking, taking care of the people in your life, volunteering, serving in your church, being a parent, creating, and much, much more. Those are all uh, under this definition and what we're going to be talking about with work and vocation. So if you are retired if you are a student, if you're a stay-at-home parent, if you're someone who doesn't get paid to work, or maybe you do get paid to work, but you also work outside of your nine to five, this is for you today. When I, when I speak of work and vocation, think of that. Think of the work that you do. This is not just for people who are employees, but for everyone. And some people like this, so I'm just going to kind of summarize where I'm going today. So, this is uh, what I'm going to say. This is the kind of outline of our sermon. It's also in your insert in your worship folder. But work is a gift from God, corrupted by sin, and redeemed by the gospel. Work is a gift from God, corrupted by sin, and redeemed in the gospel. So that's, that's where we're going today. If you want to check out and play on your phone for the next 40 minutes, you uh, know where we're going. That's a joke. So, some, some kids are like telling their parents, hey, you, did you just hear what Spencer said? I can be on my phone now. Um, All right, so as as we begin to talk about this, work is a gift from God. Let's start at the very beginning. Let's look at how uh, at the creation of the world, as God creates the cosmos, our planet, humanity, and everything uh, within our world, let's look at how work was gifted to us, how our creator uh, described our work and what it looked like before sin and death and evil corrupted and poisoned it all. So at the very beginning, we read, as God creates, he gives humanity a gift, which is work. And it's, it's a way for us to image him, to resemble him, to mirror him as image bearers. So we read at the very beginning of the Bible, first chapter of the Bible, then God said, let us, so the Trinity is working here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let, let us make mankind in our image, So at the very beginning, we see this really important core doctrine of Christianity, different than other religions and worldviews, this doctrine called the Imago Dei, that humanity was created to image, to reflect, to mirror our God in a unique and important way, unlike anything else in creation, unlike animals, unlike creation in general, unlike plants. We, humanity, represent our God. We are his ambassadors He's the owner of the vineyard, and we are his gardeners, tasked to work it on his behalf. Notice too that when uh, the Trinity is creating humanity, he says, "Let," or, uh, they say, "Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over creation." And then later, uh, humanity is called to be fruitful and to increase and to n- uh, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it. And when we think about this, just to be clear, it's not pollution and, and, and uh, destroying creation, but rather caring for it, not uh, abusing it or destroying it. <clears throat> uh, the late Tim Keller, who died just this week, and uh, Catherine Alsdorf wrote this fantastic book I'm going to be quoting a number of times today called Every Good Endeavor. If you want more on this topic, I highly recommend that book. But in their book, they say, Work has dignity because it is something that God does and because we do it in God's place as his representatives. Only man is set apart and given a job description, not plants and animals. We are called to stand in for God here in this world, exercising stewardship over the rest of creation in his place. So humanity exercises stewardship as they rule and subdue and care for creation in God's place as his representatives. And this passage ends with, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. If you know Genesis, in the creation account, uh, day one, he creates something, and then it says, and it was good. Day two, he creates, and it was good. Uh, creation ends here on this day with God seeing the, the pinnacle of his creation, a creation that now images him, reflects him in unique and powerful and important ways, and the, the pattern breaks. It's not, and it was good. It's now, and it was very good. So work is a gift from God, and it is multifaceted and has good effect. So if, if you're a visual learner, maybe this will kind of help. So work is for ourselves individually. Work is a gift given to us to uh, help benefit our neighbor. Work is also given to us for creation to thrive, and it's ultimately for us to worship and glorify our God. Each one of these arrows is important. And we move into on health and not mirroring, not imaging God when one or more of these arrows is gone. So let's very briefly look at how this work is multifaceted and this gift of work is given to us to help all four of these areas. First, ourselves. And this is the one we probably mostly think about when we think about work, especially around jobs or where we want to put our time and our energy into, we think about what do I get out of work? Is it fulfilling? Do I get joy from it? Do I make a lot of money? It, do, am I uh, taking care of myself? What are my talents, possessions, passions, opportunities, and gifts? How can I enjoy my nine to five or the chores that I do or the art that I create or the people that I serve? And we even ask questions of just flat out how can I survive? How can I make money? How can I get health insurance? How can I pay rent? And how can I grow and flourish as a person? So maybe the, a very obvious one is work benefits ourselves. But work is also uh, to glorify God. There's this upward dimension to work. We image God when we work, when we create, when we take raw materials and make order out of it, when we see and create beauty, when we make art, when we exercise just authority and rule over all areas of creation when we create new life and when we care for and subdue creation. And the New Testament picks up on this and specifically speaking to Christians, not just all humans in general, but uh, gives us this this mindset, now in Christ, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not For men. So as Christians, we're working for, ultimately, for God. Yes, we maybe are serving others. Maybe we are making a paycheck. Maybe we're caring for children or creating art that others will be blessed by. Yet, we can and do honor God, glorify God, image God through our work. A third way this plays out is obviously also for our neighbors, so outward from ourselves. We also image and represent our God to others, as we use our work and vocation for others. So it could just be, uh, or one angle on this is definitely just very normal stuff. If you build bridges, if you code software, if you teach children, if you turn grapes into wine, if you provide health care, if you grow crops, if you keep our electricity and our city running, if you publish books, if you bake bread, others, neighbors, other humans are benefited by it. Martin Luther famously and brilliantly said, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. God is not sitting there on his hands as if like, I really need you to do X, Y, and Z, or else I'm, I'm screwed. Of course not. God does not need us. He does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. Luther has a fantastic theology on work and vocation and helped Uh, all of Western Christianity rethink this and move from, well, the only important work is that of the priesthood, and that of monks, and that of nuns, and you uh, beer makers, and cobblers, and farmers, and soldiers, and uh, that's just um, uh, unimportant work. There's a a sacred, secular divide. But Luther and other reformers helped us see that God actually does not need our works. He is all powerful and in control. Yet, he chooses to use you and me. He chooses to use humanity to take care of neighbor, to take care of others in these many ways that we brought up. Additionally, not just for random strangers or other people out there, but God uses our work to provide for our own families and our spiritual families, whether it's through making money or providing health care or much other... uh, other um, ways like that. So for most of us, our, if you have a job or a spouse who has a job or a parent who has a job, your employer provides health insurance, salaries, etc. And that is the means by which God uses to care for many of us, maybe even most of us here in this room. So we're able to work and earn money in order to meet the needs of those God has placed within our family and within our spiritual families as well. And for those of us, maybe you don't have a job, but for those of us who have the gift of time or flexibility, you too can use that for the sake of caring for, serving, and encouraging others, both in your own households and in the household of faith, our spiritual household, the church. And then finally, we are given work to also care for creation. We've been called as humans to exercise care and stewardship as we fill the earth and have dominion over it and Subdue it. Like we saw in our passage here today in creation, uh, the Trinity, God Almighty, created humanity in order that they may rule in his place. Be fruitful in number, subdue, fill the earth. When we think of these words, we might think of like domination or destruction, but these words of of filling the earth, subduing it, having dominion, ruling, uh, rather we should think of them as a gardener, Uh, taking care of a garden, you know, uh, pulling weeds, cutting back plants, uh, you know, uh, branches on plants so that it can flourish. So as humanity exercises uh, rule and dominion, uh, subduing creation, we too image our God in that we take chaos of a garden and we bring order out of it. We take chaos and and raw materials uh, in an art table and we turn that into Beautiful art. We create things. We grow things. We have children. We make families. We take raw materials and build so that humanity can be safe and grow and flourish. And much more. And in doing this, over creation, we will be God's representatives, his his ambassadors, those he's put in charge to uh, mirror and reflect him into the earth. And if you're still not convinced, one thing that's kind of helpful for me, again, from the, the Keller and uh book on vocation, God could have fed the world through manna from heaven, and he, and he did for a short period in time, right? He could have done that, but instead, he chooses to use you and me, he chooses to use humanity to care for uh, the rest of humanity, right? He calls people to be uh, farmers, to be truck drivers, to be bakers and grocery store workers, Also that... We can eat bread or gluten-free bread, if that's what you want or need, right? He could rain manna from heaven, but he chooses to use us in in, in lesser ways to mirror and resemble him. Now, like we said, if any of these four arrows are absent or or very, very small or more, uh, we move then into unhealth. We stop fully imaging and representing our God as well as we can move into places of uh, neglect, or harm, or um, selfishness, or greed, or uh, much, much more. All right, this is a huge topic, and it's, it seems even kind of foolish to try to teach it all in one sermon, and so what we're going to do as a church is kind of just a, a long announcement, a long promo for this, but what we're going to do this summer, uh, because we can't say everything, and because you need to learn from each other, and it's great to have discussions and hear other people's stories. This summer, we're going have three events uh, kind of leading out of this sermon. So Rob Worland, who's uh, raising his hand right now. <laughs> Rob Worland is uh, our, our intern uh, this year, uh, currently, and this is one of his big projects, is he's going to help us begin to con- or continue to think through and discuss and learn uh, as we think about this idea of gospel and Vocation. So, because work is such a huge part of our life, it it uh, affects our worship, it affects us loving our neighbors, it affects our identity and ourselves and creation. Um, We want to help us uh, grow and and stay strong and learn from each other in this uh, as a church. So, we're going to hold three events this summer that will help us learn and implement and be encouraged in Jesus around this theme of gospel and. Vocation, And so uh, we're going to have one in June, one in July, one in August, one per month. The dates are up there. You can get more info, and you can RSVP to these on our church's app. They'll be about um, about an hour long, and when we get together, we'll have some lunch. We'll have uh, a testimony, someone just sharing how th- this, this idea of gospel and vocation is playing out in their life. We'll have a short teaching on a subject connected to it, and we will have plenty of time to discuss. So the, the three topics, which we're not going to hit on all three of those this morning, we're going to push it off to these events this summer. Uh, uh, June, we're going to talk about Acts 17 and God's sovereignty over where we live and the gifts and the talents he has given us. Um, in July, we're going to talk about how the curse and how sin affects our work. And in August, we're going to talk about the work-rest balance. How do we image our creator God who did rest on the seven day, seventh day? 7th Day? How do we avoid the two extremes of being a workaholic and being lazy? How do we see Christ as our ultimate rest and more? So you're invited to one, two, or all three of these this summer. If you want to come, invite people, and again, more info, and sign up on our app. So even though we've just spent 10 minutes talking about how work is a gift, how vocation is a gift, uh, Garfield would say, and, and your hearts and minds probably are, are thinking right now, well, yeah, okay, I know it's a gift, or maybe you kind of persuaded me here, but uh, work still sucks. Like, have you met my boss? Have you seen my house? Have you uh, interacted with my family or my colleagues or my roommates? So we don't have to work very hard to see how work can be a gift, but at the same time, it is also uh, very hard. We can see that it's been cursed. That it's been broken, that it's been affected by sin. You might be saying, Yeah, I get work is supposed to be good, but then why do I hate my job so much? Why do I like recreation, but not vocation? Why does work just in general, why is it hard? Why do we sweat? Why does it make our bodies ache? Why is it not easy? So, yes, work is a gift from God, yet, like we said, the beginning. It is also very much corrupted by sin. Let's look at the very, uh, just a few verses later from the Genesis passage we read about the creation of humanity. This is right after Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled against God, and this is God speaking to them. He says, Because you have rebelled against me, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and, sh- and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, our rebellion against God brought sin into the world, and with that came brokenness, came thorns and thistles, and pain and suffering and futility and vanity. So, to be clear, work is not the problem, it is sin. That is the problem. Again, Keller and Elsdorf write about this. They write, Work is a supreme gift from God and one of the main things that gives our life purpose, but it must play its proper role, subservient to God. When we think, I hate work, and it's okay to think that, we we all think that at times, we should remember that despite the fact that work can be a particularly potent reminder and even amplifier of the curse of sin on all things, it itself is not a curse. Your kids are not a curse. Your garden, your boss, your colleagues, your teammates, your teachers are not the curse. The, the, the struggle that you feel is real. The suffering is real, yet it is because of sin. And it, work itself, vocation itself is not the curse. So work sometimes is fulfilling. And that's great when it is. But now because of sin, our own sin and the brokenness of all of creation, work often feels like vanity. Work feels like it's against us. It's painful. It's broken. Not to mention the fact that work and everything uh, connected to it often crushes us. Our, Our sinful view of how we view work actually does not empower us, but usually crushes us. Our culture, as well as our misleading hearts, tell us that Work is the way to create meaning. You are valuable when you produce. Produce great art, produce great kids, produce game-winning goals, produce A's on your report card. And if you don't, then you are worthless. You are not as important. You are unloved. You are broken. We think we have to build a name and a reputation for ourselves. We're told that by our parents and our teachers and our culture. But what happens when we fail? What happens when you fail that test? What happens when you don't get it in college? What happens when your boss is disappointed in you? What happens when you get fired? What happens when your kids uh, turn out not well? What happens when you get in trouble with the law? What happens if you screw up and betray and abandon the people that trust you? We also think that we have more value in the more worth, the more money we make, the better the more letters we have behind our name, the more degrees, the more accolades, the more popular we are, the more, the more uh, our team lifts us up on their shoulders when we hit the game-winning home run or when we win homecoming king or queen. Yet what happens when we don't have that? What happens when we miss the shot? What happens when we lose our jobs? What happens when we're just not that great of a person, not that great of a parent or colleague? Or that, that great of a Christian? What if we let down our leaders in our church? What if when we volunteer, we're really bad at it? What if we're just apathetic and don't care? We think that our work should fulfill us and give uh, our lives meaning. And for some of us at times in our life, it does. But you've been told that lie, that half-truth for your whole life. What happens when it doesn't? We're crippled when we think, I'm not actually fulfilled in my job. It's mostly thorns and thistles And pain and suffering, it's actually not fun and joy and the greatest thing I'm excited to do when I wake up in the morning. If we're honest with ourselves, at least in most of our life, maybe you're in a season where this isn't fully true all the time, but when we're honest with ourselves, we are acutely aware of just how our works can actually be a crushing burden rather than a life-giving joy. We know that sin has corrupted our work and our attempts at earning value, And it will not work at our ability to tip the scales in our favor. And it is in this vanity, it is in this discouragement, it is in this hopelessness or helplessness of our work, giving us life, giving us value, giving us identity. It is in this big, sad, uh, sucky state that Jesus comes to us. And he rescues us, and he meets our greatest need at the greatest level. So yes, work is a gift from God. It is corrupted by sin. But the greatest news here is that our work is redeemed in the gospel. Jesus' good news to you and me is that he worked so you don't have to. Jesus worked so you don't have to. We've been talking a lot about vocation and our jobs and our work and the stuff we do and create and produce in our lives. But additionally, our our natural bent is to work to prove ourselves to God as well. God, you should love me because I'm a pretty good person. God, you should reward me because I give you my money. I give you my time. I give you my thoughts. Or maybe I know I'm a scumbag or have been in my past, and so I'm going to work really hard at serving, at being generous, at loving people, at denying myself, in order to tip the scale so that God will approve of me, receive me, forgive me, love me. We try to use our work to turn his head, to earn his favor, to work off our debts, our failings, and our sin. But the good news of Jesus is that he did all of the work for us. Jesus did all four of these things for us. We will fail again and again to image our God, to do what we were created to do, yet Jesus does all four of these things for us perfectly. He knew we have failed and will fail, and so he, as the perfect human being, he came to earth, he became a human so that he could live the perfect human life for us in our place. He is the one that truly images God. So towards himself, he, he knew his mission. He knew the work that he came to do, and he did so with confidence and assurance and love and joy. Jesus' work perfectly glorified and honored the Father. He obeyed the Father's call and the Father's plan and desire for his life as the one who is sent into the world to save, uh, to save the world. Jesus' work also brought hope and faith and life, not just to his friends and family, but also to his neighbors, and not just his neighbors, but even his enemies. The people that hated him, the people that betrayed him, the people that killed him, and people like you and me. Jesus' work produced hope, faith, and even life for neighbors and enemies alike. And his work also is bringing in a new creation. A new creation, one that is fully renewed, fully restored, removed from all the effects of the curse. Christ's work is making all things new, and his final return will release all of creation from the bondage and destruction of the curse and sin. So where you and I, where humanity failed to image God, Jesus victoriously succeeded. And he does that for us, on our behalf, because of his unconditional love for us. Lise Fitzpatrick writes about this. She writes, she says, true Christianity is not a program of self improvement. It's an acknowledgement that something more than self improvement is needed. What's needed is death and resurrection. Christianity is not, okay, here's the tools, here's the rules, here's the motivation, here's the, the support so that you can finally image God good again. It's not a program of self-improvement. It's acknowledged that self-improvement, rules, law, will not do it, will not work. And so we need something different. We need death and resurrection. First, we need Jesus' death and resurrection, which is the work on our place for us. And then out of that, we need our own death and resurrection. We need to die to the old self that could only fail in work, could only be ruled by the curse We need to die to that old self and be resurrected in Christ, filled with his spirit. That is what Christianity is. That is what the good news is. Brothers and sisters and visitors, people who are checking out the faith, seekers, whatever you want to call yourself, we cannot earn our salvation. We cannot earn God's favor through our works, through our deeds, through our promotions, through our self-improvement, through our piety, through our self-denial, or through our morality. We cannot earn it. The New Testament is clear on this. Jesus is clear on this. One of the clearest places we read it is in Ephesians 2, where we read, For by grace, by a gift, an unmerited gift, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not of works so that no one may boast. The author is very clear to us. It says it multiple times because we just don't get it. It's by a gift you have been saved. You did not earn it. And it's not because of your work. It's not because you're impressive or valuable or a great parent or a great servant or a great employee or a great student. It's just a gift. It's just a gift from God because He loves you by grace. It's not a result of your works, not your good works not your works with your job, not your works for God, so that no one may boast. Maybe you don't know much about Christianity, but when we gather on Sundays, we're, we're in our actions, in our words, in our songs, just by gathering, we, we are saying publicly, we're saying it to ourselves, we're saying it to each other, we don't boast. The only thing we boast on is our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are not good people that are patting each other on the back. We're not saying, we're the smart ones, We're the good ones. We're the hard workers. We're not the fools. Everyone out there in our city, they're the fools. They're the bad people. But we're the good. Actually, we're not saying, we're saying the exact opposite when we gather. We're saying we need Jesus. We do not boast about ourselves. And if anything does good come out of us, it is a result of him. His good works, his plan, the fruit that he grows within us, his spirit changing our hearts and changing our motivations and empowering us. And this verse continues right after all this. Very clear language. Verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship. Again, notice notice here who's working. God's the worker. We are his workmanship. We are his masterpieces created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So notice, too, this description of our salvation. It ends that we are created. We are recreated for something. Okay, We don't earn our salvation by our works, but rather out of our salvation, out of being resurrected, now God is creating good works for us to walk in. Notice how it even says the good works that you do, the the hard work you do in, in your homes and in your dorm rooms and with your colleagues and with your families and in your church, even that, God is behind the scenes creating that. He's the author of that. And in some mystical way, how does this all work? Together, we are the ones that do the work. We are the ones that walk in this, yet God is sovereign behind it. He is behind the scenes creating these works, and it is his desire that we should walk in these good works as a fruit, as a response to us being so being saved, which also includes uh, we don't stay saved by continuing in these works, but rather because we are secure, because we are loved, because salvation is by grace and is a gift. So when we see good works in our own lives and in the lives of others, we don't boast, nor do we get jealous, because we know it is God empowering and behind all of these good works. Rather, it can lead to thankfulness and joy and worship and celebration, as opposed to Jealousy and envy because other Christians are doing more than us or rather than uh, arrogance and pride when we think we are doing more than others. So this is the good news. Work is redeemed in the gospel because Jesus worked when we would only and have only failed again and again. Yet even though that is good news and we could just stop right there, the, the very real and practical is the yet, yet, you're going to still sin, yet you are going to view work incorrectly, yet probably tomorrow morning or even this afternoon, you're going to think good about yourself or horrible about yourself based on how you perform at your job, with your friends, on your sports team, in the classroom, with your family. So what happens when we are still tempted to view work incorrectly? What happens when we make work an idol or our full identity or when we just are apathetic or when we fail? the gospel is good news for us in that moment as well. When our work sucks, when it grows into an idol, when it becomes our identity, and when we ourselves are just bad at work, or when we fail, when we let people down, when we're lazy, when we don't care, the gospel is still good news for us. Let me just give us a few examples here. When life sucks, when your boss is horrible, when your work feels like chasing after wind, when you hate a class that you're taking yet have to, when you're deeply, when you deeply feel just the monotony of cooking and cleaning, of, of commuting to work and, and sitting behind that computer, when it seems like you have a never ending list of chores and childcare, when your team lets you down again and again and you just cannot win a game in your season, when you b- begin to retire and it just doesn't look like what you hoped it would be, or it isn't, because it just can't be for whatever reason. When life sucks, Jesus' love is not taken away from you. He isn't mad at you. He's not punishing you. He's not angry with you, looking at your mistakes and your failures, and telling you, well, this is why it sucks, is because... You have embarrassed me because you're being a bad employee, because I'm ashamed of you, son or daughter. This is why life and work sucks. It is not that at all. Like Keller Nelsdorfer reminded us, the sin and brokenness of the world is, is because of the fall. It is because of sin. And this, there's real world consequences in our lives, in our work, in our classrooms and boardrooms. Yet we must not connect that to who Jesus is and how he feels about us. Maybe you are are, uh, tempted with seeing your work as your full identity. I am a mother. I am an executive. I am the star person on my team. I am a 4.0 student. Whatever it is, as we make it into an idol rather than a gift, and then it fails you, when it does not provide the security that you thought it would, the, the, the joy that you thought it would, when you get crowned homecoming queen, but then in just a few minutes you want more, when you finally get that promotion, but you realize that did not fix your heart, you're still a bit greedy, or you still want your parents to be proud of you, whatever it might be, when that plays out in your life, when your idol does not satisfy you or give you what it promises, or maybe, maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's just when you fail, when you're a bad employee, when you strike out, when your kids don't behave, when your ministry falls flat and people don't show up. Or maybe you're just apathetic. Or maybe you're just greedy or hateful or jealous at times. When you fail, Jesus is gently calling you back to himself. None of those failures, none of your idolatry changes the way that he views you. You're not more valuable to him when you perform. He doesn't like you less when you fail. I don't think we really believe that most of the time. You are not more valuable to Jesus Christ when you perform. Maybe you're more valuable to your boss or your spouse or your parent or your teammates, but that is not so with Jesus. Jesus. In your greatest failures, in your lack of any performance, he loves you the same. And he also likes you the same. He doesn't just love you because God the Father is making him. He didn't just die, but he can't stand you. He didn't just die for you, but God the Father made him. He actually likes you too. He wants to be around you. He loves you. Again, Tim Keller, listen to what he says. This This is just brilliant and impactful. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. Right? So for someone to love you but they don't really know your past, they don't really know your heart, they don't know what's going on in your mind or your motives or your temptations or what you feel. To be loved but not known, it's comforting but it's it's superficial, Keller says. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. Right? We don't want people to know what we've done, at night, what we've done in our minds, what we've done in our past. We don't want people to really know what's going on in our hearts, what our motives for, serving others, loving others, being a part of a church, being a good parent, being you know on a team, whatever it might be. To be known and not loved, that's our greatest fear, and that's why we hide. That's why we don't let people in. That's why we don't share our hearts. That's why we put on masks. But... He continues, to be fully known and truly loved is, well, it's a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of self-righteousness and fortifies us for any, difficult, any difficulty life can throw at us. That is the good news for you and I, for us here today. You are fully known and not rejected in Christ. He knows everything about you. He knows everything you will do. He knows all the sin and brokenness and failures that you will do in the future, and he still loves you. You maybe have no one else in your life like that. Maybe not your spouse, your best friend, your mentor, your parent. Maybe no one in your life loves you like that if they really knew what you've done, if you really abandoned them, betrayed them, were apathetic towards them that that relationship would end. But with Jesus, that is not true. He knows the the, the bad parts. He knows your past, and he's staying. He's sticking around. You might abandon him for a time. He will never abandon you. You might be uh, unfaithful to him, but he is a faithful savior. And so this is the great news for us around work. It is a gift. Yes, it is deeply corrupted by Sin. Sin out there in the world and sin in our hearts as well. Yet Jesus worked so we don't have to. We just put our faith in him alone. We put our trust in in his work, not our own. And then as a fruit of that, our work can now more resemble, more image our creator God. As a fruit, as a benefit, as something great. Not as something that turns God's head or makes Jesus love you more. But remember, he knows your deep, dark secrets. He knows your past. He knows what's been done to you. He knows your impurity and your selfishness, your hatred, your greed, and your failures. And he says, I'm still going to die for him. I'm still going to die for her. I love you. I just love you just because I love you. So now, through the gospel, Our work can once again image God as we create, as we rule, as we fill the earth, as we subdue creation, as we create and foster life, as we bring order from chaos in our lives and the world. And when we don't, and we won't, especially not perfectly, our security in Christ does not change. His love for us does not leave. And his spirit will keep us until the day when we meet him face to face in paradise. For all eternity. Let's pray. God, we thank you that uh, you picked us to, to, to resemble you, to image you to all creation. We thank you that work can bring great joy. It can bring satisfaction. It can serve others. Uh, work can be really great, but help us to see its place. It's a gift, yet broken, yet redeemed fully through your Son. We pray against all the ways that we believe that you only love us when we perform, that we only have value when we succeed, when we make money, when we produce good kids, when we uh, score the game-winning goal, when we're popular or beautiful or impressive. Help us to to not believe that lie, but to believe that you see our pasts, our hearts, our motives, our minds, and you still love us. You, You don't run. And out of that, out of that saving faith as we put our trust in what your work not ours that you would make great fruit uh, come out of that we thank you god that you uh, don't just suck us up into heaven into your presence immediately after you save us but as as, as joy as uh, image bearers of you now we get to walk in the good works that you have authored for us that you have created for us And so we pray that those works would glorify you, would bring us joy, would serve our church and our family and our neighbors and our city and our classmates and colleagues. And that in all of this, you'd be glorified and more and more people would come to saving faith and uh, fulfilling uh, life now and eternal life uh, through faith in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.